Hello and welcome to Philosophy with Will Anderson. I'll be very quick because I actually do an intro at the start of this episode that explains most of the things that I need to explain in this episode. So uh, I'm just going to do a plug. My show, uh, Will Informed, debuts at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival and it does debut there. It was going to debut in Hobart. Uh, It turns out that it didn't debut in Hobart because... I didn't have a show together in time, so I did my old show, Will Legal. Um, uh, I had not done my show, Will Legal, in Hobart before, so I'm hoping that most people who came along on the night saw it uh, for the first time. I have been made aware that there was a couple of people who didn't see it for the first time, and uh, we have privately corresponded with them and uh, offered them their money back. But please don't take this as an open invitation, if you were there, to... to to ask for your money back. That's all I would say because uh, I I made a very rational adult decision that I thought that 550 people, there might be one or two had already seen the show, I should show the other 548 people a good show as opposed to the burning pile of shit that my show is currently. <laughs> anyway, this is not a good ad. This is meant to be the ad for my comedy festival show. It's going to be the first time in about 20 years I've debuted a show at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival and uh, I um, am doing everything that I possibly can to make it an awesome experience for everyone who's going to come along. But it starts uh, Wednesday the 27th. So if you want to come along and help me put the show together, if you want to come along in the first couple of nights and see some jokes that I'm imagining no one will ever see again, then uh, the first couple of nights, cheap preview prices. Uh, this year, very much cheaper for a reason. <laughs> Come on, I'm terrible at advertising. Anyway, this is uh, a really good episode of the podcast. I hope that you uh, very much enjoy my chat with Rosie. I'm in the studio with Rosie, but not the Rosie who's in this podcast. Anyway, this is a meta thing for for people don't need to know this. I'm terrible at intros. I probably shouldn't just do intros. Like I actually only did this intro because I was like, I should plug my show. And then I realized that this intro has made people less likely to go and see my show than it has made people actually want to go and see my show. Anyway, I'm going to put it at the start anyway, because a podcast needs an intro and you know, you guys need a window into how much I hate myself on a daily basis. Anyway, love you all. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Enjoy. Hello and welcome to Philosophy. I'm Will Anderson from the title of the podcast. Now, um, it's been an interesting couple of weeks on this podcast. It's been an interesting little year, to be honest. And uh, last week you would have heard uh, two episodes with Dan Sultan. One we recorded nearly eight months ago, nearly nine months ago, in fact, and then one we recorded just a few weeks ago um, because the uh, week we recorded the first one, uh, some shit went down in his life and we decided to have another catch up and update it. And so if you haven't listened to that one, go and check it out. But this one also is a little special because Mm. here's probably my biggest regret about this podcast. And I will say this honestly, is that um, I I love, I I feel, feel like it's a great honor because the only people I have on this podcast, because it's not a commercial operation, because I have no boss, because there's no sort of imperial, I, I never look at the numbers. I don't compare episodes to like this episode did better than this episode. I only ever invite people on this podcast that I want to talk to and that are friends of mine or that I'm interested in. And so occasionally as it has happened over the years, because I am technically inept and that's why I have uh, the lovely podcast mic over here who actually gets the podcast out to the public now uh, these days. Um, I've lost a few and that, that to me is the worst thing because my friends or these people that I admire have given me their time 
and we've had this kind of cool moment and then it gets lost and nobody else gets to hear it. In some ways, it's really special to me because you almost never get to have those conversations with your actual friends. And so essentially I've just conned someone into having a really deep and meaningful one-on-one conversation with me for an hour and a half and then never released it to the public, uh, which is something that you don't get to do. So in some ways it's very special, but in some ways I always feel uh, really disappointed by that. There's a Jason Byrne episode, a, a Kitty Flanagan episode, the original one I did with Ronnie Chang. And today I actually get to... Uh, rewrite history, remake it, get a second go. Because normally when I lose one, I feel completely embarrassed by the fact that I am inept and I never would ever approach the person to do another one. Cause I feel like I've already put them through it and then it didn't come out. And then, so this week, this uh, person who was a, a good friend of mine, uh, messaged me out of the blue and in a very, uh, in, in a very nice way, just dipped his toe into the water of like, Hey, did that episode ever come out? <laughs> Because I, I like to live in the world where no one cares that they actually made the podcast and they never noticed that it came out. But clearly, uh, I had been sprung. And so um, it gave me a wonderful opportunity to be able to say, hey, can you come and do it again? So uh, this is how the podcast normally starts after that massive preamble. Uh, guest, who are you? Adam Rosenbachs. Now, uh, Adam Rosenbachs, take two. It's nice to have you here. You know what? I I doubted. I My initial thought was, I'd done a really bad job. And so I thought that you just didn't want to run it. And so, but now I do believe that uh, when you gave me those other names, I was like, oh no, you would have put those people out there at the very least. So, uh, Well, also Adam, what you've got to realize is this is a free podcast. And as someone who also has a free podcast, you realize if you record it, you put it out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> There's no, some, no great high jump hurdle <laughs> that we're putting our podcast content no, over. Hanging on to. And the other thing I thought as I was coming in here uh, this afternoon and thinking about it during the week was that um, it is both times that we've recorded now, uh, both times after I've nearly died. And so I hope we're not setting a pattern. Well, yeah, so last time we chatted was yes. after we'd come back from Kelly and Limo's wedding. Yes. And I'd been, Fake wedding, it turns out. Yes. But since rectified. Yes, well, that's... I'm not not in my eyes. Um, <laughs> so I had the incident... Uh, I had an incident... I'm an anaphylactic... And so I'd eaten some nuts at the post-wedding party. Um, it wasn't really a party. It was just a few people having a drink and I ruined that. And I got rushed to hospital in, in Bali into the, the International Hospital in Kuda and was there overnight. And, you know, when you've eaten nuts and you're anaphylactic, it's not pleasant. Yeah. And when you die in Bali, most people aren't going to believe it was a peanut allergy. <laughs> no, no, they're not. It was one of those things where you say you ruined the party, but really you only ruined a small amount of the party. Without yeah. you, the rest of the party still went on. They were like, well, Rosie's dying. We can't do anything about that. Let's well, not, I did walk past someone and said, I've, I'm, in, I'm in trouble here. And he just like laughed and kept going into the party. <laughs> My friend Johnny. And I was like, yeah, thanks for that, mate. So that wasn't pleasant. How did you uh, read the news this week? Because it's always interesting to me because there'll be stuff in the newspaper about osteoarthritis, which I have. And um, mm-hmm. it'll be about some wonder breakthrough or some injection or some stem cells thing. And then for the next three months, every time I run into someone who's half read that article, they'll suggest to me that I should be spending $50,000 on stem cells, you know, in some lab that hasn't really been proven to work, right? Yeah. Um, there was is, there a, is there a peanut cure? Yeah, there was a story I this week no, that, no that there may be an anaphylactic injection. That People you... want me gone. <laughs> <laughs> no one's telling me about it. They're like, just keep it to yourself. Whatever you do, <laughs> don't tell Rosie. You're like a TV celebrity in the 80s where they give them a newspaper and they've cut out the unpleasant letters yeah, of the yeah, great yeah. guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone's censoring stuff yeah. for me. <laughs> Things are, my newspaper is redacted. 
Would you like? Was it? Would that be something that would be helpful in your life if there was some sort of like injection or pill that you could take to prevent you from like? Would you love to be able to eat peanuts again, for example? Uh, no, the thing is with peanuts, I think because it happened so much when I was a kid, and before I could um, talk about it, I must have known that it made me feel awful. So I don't miss them at all. Yeah. Like, there's no part you of you don't desire. No, I mean that'd be the worst, wouldn't it be? If all you desired was like peanuts, it would or be pretty butter. tough. But but I stumbled onto almonds. Um, someone had made a cake at work, and I was eating some, and I was like, "This tastes weird. I've never tasted this flavour before." And I was like, "What what's in this?" And they said, "Oh, almond meal." And I was like, "Okay, I don't think Ooh. I can, but I can. I can eat that, and I love almonds now." Okay, so perhaps. Although I think peanuts, to me, the the smell and the flavour just has too much of a connotation of really bad times. Yeah. Well, so I'd, also, never go, I'd never go back there. I mean, there must be a difference between almonds and peanuts as well, right? Like, I mean... Well, I don't know. Well, I think you do know. Oh, just well, through that's a process true. of the experimentation. Whole thing? Yeah. Like, I mean, yeah, the fact that you haven't died when you had <laughs> yeah. your almond cake, yeah. I would suggest that that's like taking, you know, like a little bit of molly at a music festival versus going, you know what, I'm going to try meth for the first time yeah, on this I'll beach in Frankston. And I'll go, I'll go hard. Yeah. <laughs> Um, how has that influenced your life, uh, being someone who like, has to be vigilant about the fact that you could accidentally eat something that would kill you? Yeah. I, th- my issue is that I'm not vigilant enough. Like I'm very casual about it. Uh, particularly in Australia, I've had to go to hospital a couple of times. And I think just because I, I, I don't think it, that Bali was the closest I've ever come to death. Like that was touch and go. Like they were talking about tracheotomy at one point. Like I was really struggling to breathe. And that I think was the time when I went, all right, this is full on. And before that, there'd been times where I'll slowly, my throat will close over and I'll get puffy in the face. But by that time I've I'm, I'm gotten to hospital. Like I've never been that far away. But if I was in a remote area, I think I'd be super vigilant and just be, you know, super careful. Can you remember what it felt like on that night? Because, you know, we, we joke about it, but mm. the truth of it is that, Everybody was not in the headspace. You know, they've been at a wedding in Bali. Everyone was hammered. At New Year's, yeah. right? Like, it's... And then suddenly you're in a, an actual serious medical emergency. Can you remember, like, being aware of that and, and how you felt at the time? Were you calm about what was going on or were you just suddenly going, I'm in a third world country and I'm having a possibly life-threatening thing happen to me and no one's really paying full attention to it? Well, because I, I left I left where I was because my girlfriend had gone back to the hotel room um, and so I left where we were at. So I thought I, I didn't want to bother anyone because it was a wedding. I didn't want to ruin the wedding. And I, might, I can't even remember if I said to someone, I've eaten some nuts, I need to go. And so I went back to the hotel and Steph was there and she'd ordered, um, you know, uh, some room service. Peanut butter sandwiches. Yeah. yeah. She didn't think I was... A bowl full of peanuts. Because she went back early. She was yeah. like, oh, I'm just going to take it easy. You keep partying, you know, Limo's your mate. Yeah. And then I got there and she's like, oh, great. You're back. This is awesome. We can just sort of hang out and enjoy the rest of the night. And I said, I've eaten some peanuts. And so I had two EpiPens on me. And so I jabbed myself with both of those. And EpiPens, if you're not sort of aware of them, they buy you time. They don't just undo it instantly. Right. They just give you a bit of space so you can get so to you hospital. can't. So the EpiPen isn't the cure. Like you can't go, uh, I've had my EpiPen, I'll go to sleep and everything will be fine. No, they wouldn't recommend that. Okay. Have the EpiPen, get to hospital. And so I had two, and I've never had the EpiPen before that. And when that did almost, from what I could tell, fuck all, I was like, that's when it went I'm in big trouble. And I said that to Steph. I was like, I, I can't feel any difference. Clearly it would have made a difference. Might, might have bought me an extra half an hour or whatever it was. And so that's when I was like, 
we've got to get to the hospital now. And so she rang down to the front desk and said, you know, can you call an ambulance? And they said, it's going to be 45 minutes for an ambulance. And I said, I do not have 45 minutes. And so we went down. So by this stage, I couldn't swallow anymore. Um, so I kind of was helped down to the, to a, a cab who drove us like a madman. Like it was like out of a, um, a chase scene in a, in an action thriller like this cab driver was driving insanely and Steph was really upset. And then I think they must've rung ahead to the hospital. Cause I remember people coming out to meet me and then I'm very vague after that. I yeah. Just okay. So that's up. what I was interested in mm. was when you were on the way there though, were you still, that's when I thought I'm in massive trouble here. I can't swallow at all. And I'm really struggling to breathe. What, um, I have, I've never really been in a moment like that. The closest I ever came was I nearly, I got myself caught in a rip swimming alone, uh, in, uh, Byron Bay. So the thing, the thing with all that sort of stuff is, you know, they, the one thing I think that helped me was being that drunk meant I was relaxed. Okay. Interesting. Whereas if I was alert and I probably would have started to panic and think about all the consequences where I was so drunk that I was just kind of like, I'm in a bad way, but there's nothing I can do about it. And wasn't even thinking like that. But caught in a rip, they tell you, relax and just go out to the back, let it take you out and then swim back. It's like, who the fuck is relaxing? Um, great balance for the podcast, by the way, because Dan Sultan last week told a really terrible story about alcohol. So now it's good to have a positive one. Just <laughs> yeah, exactly. Interest of balance. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, uh, How much sec- of a panic did you go into? Well, so this is it. I didn't think... Initially, I went into a big panic because mm-hmm. I'd already been for a run. This was like a decade ago, yep. um, back when I could run. Yep. And uh, I'd already been for a run maybe um, five kilometers mm-hmm. in the sand. Yeah, and right. I was going to have like a swim, you know, go out, have a bit of a swim and then yep. and then run back. And so I was tired enough. I, like I wasn't buggered. I still yeah, yeah. like was, you know, but I was. You're I fatigued. Wasn't, yeah, I was fatigued. Yeah. And. I just did not see the rip, and then suddenly I was in the rip. I just was distracted or whatever. Can you just... pick them, can you? Oh, from the beach, you can normally see if something looks like a rip, and I would say that normally I'm overcautious. Yep. You're not meant to swim by yourself in the ocean, but yeah. if I, I do it all the time, and most of the time I go, well, I'll be overcautious about where I swim. Yeah, I won't okay. go into anything that looks dangerous. dangerous yep. But you know what it was? I love... Like just laying in the ocean. Yeah. Like I'm one of those people who like just by myself, I've been for a run. So you're a Dead Sea fan. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And I just must have floated into a rip. And it took me a little while to realize. I was like, I'm having a bit of trouble getting in. And then yeah. I really was like, oh, hang on. Like it's, it, the water was rushing. Past, back past you. Yeah, but under. Yes. Okay. So, yeah, yeah. Like on the top, it still didn't look terrible. Yeah. But there was just this massive undercurrent that was being sucked out. And I suddenly realized, I was like, I might be in a bit of trouble here. And I mean, obviously, spoiler alert, uh, yep. got through it. But uh, <laughs> Were there people on the beach? No one. So it would have been one of those yep. things where I just went yep. for a run one morning. And it was three in the morning. Disappeared. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was running home from yeah. the pub. I was running away from the police. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, but it was, it was like maybe, it was probably like nine or 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning or yeah, something yeah. like that. So there was just no one around, you know. And I... Um, I, re- I remember there definitely being a couple of moments where I went under a bit and gulped in some water and wow. like, and then kind of composed my mind. It was like, like you said, float out, yeah, conserve your energy right now, get your energy back. So you got your wits about it. Float out. Yeah. Well, after a, a l- initial panic. Yeah. Or yeah, maybe, okay. I don't know how long it actually was, probably under a minute, but at the time felt like probably a lot longer than that. So it was probably, 
wouldn't have even been a minute, would it? Because that's a long time. In fact, you're right. It probably would have been like 20, yeah, 20 seconds. 30 seconds, yeah. Yeah, but That's it felt, enough. Yeah. And did you, did it ever cross your mind that you might drown? Yeah. Definitely did. I was like, oh, I fucked this. That was literally what I thought too. Not like, oh dear, the humanity, yeah. I will die. <laughs> but my literal thought was, ah, I'm going to die. I'm and you know who's to blame for this? Yeah, yeah, mate. Me. That, <laughs> no one else. Me. That was the thought I had. Uh, I've done gigs for the troops and we went to Afghanistan. And so one thing they tell you when you're over there is because uh, when you're in Kabul, you're surrounded by mountains. And so they, they talk about um, the Taliban firing rockets in from the mountain onto the base. So that's what they do a lot. And they say, if the rocket attack comes, you've got, because there, there's radars all over, you've got like eight seconds to either get on the ground or get into a bomb shelter. And they tell you if you do hit the ground to make sure your feet are facing the mountain because they prefer your feet get blown off than your head. All right, so it's pretty serious. Very good logic. Yeah, I mean it makes sense. You can replace feet. Yeah. Um, so we would we'd done a gig one night and opens up some new material. Yeah, yeah, it does. <laughs> so we, I was standing at the back uh, watching. I'd already done my spot and I was watching a band up there and everyone started like the music cut out and I thought it must be electricity thing. We're in Afghanistan. I'm sure it just drops out all the time. And then everyone started screaming rocket attack. And I thought maybe for our sake, they said that everyone got on the ground. Like it was just to try to spook the civilians or just to make sure we we're overly safe or cautious. And everyone hit the deck, like SAS, the works went to ground. And I remember laying there with my hands on my head, um, cause rockets don't go through hands and just <laughs> thinking <laughs> I've fucking done this to myself. Yeah. Like not, flashbacks you know not looking at my life or anything like that just sitting there just going you had the choice to be here and you took it and this is the reason that you're about to die that uh, that reassures me a bit because literally that was the same thing that i thought it's like oh well you fuck this my life didn't flash before my eyes i didn't get to see all my greatest moments no the last bit is you chastising yourself going you're a fucking idiot yeah yeah. I didn't cry out for my loved ones. Not at I all. I didn't try to make peace with a higher like maker or anything like that. Didn't call out for mum. I literally was just like, oh, great. I fucked this. <laughs> it's my fault. I fucked this up. It is my fault. And, and you know, you think, oh, I know better than this too. Yeah. Like with the nut thing, I was just like, I knew we're in Southeast Asia. Like that's, you know, it's a troublesome spot for me just because, yeah. you know, they cook with so much of it. And I stupidly ate one. Um. When did you know that you were going to be okay? Were, were you drugged up enough during what happened in between those two things that you don't have too much of a sort of awareness of, or were you still aware that you were, you know, in, in a pretty f- severe situation? I was still aware. I, I didn't hear them talk about the tracheotomy thing. They ran that past Steph and for whatever reason, I must've stabilized enough that they went, we don't have to do that. And I think once the doctor seemed calm, then I felt like, okay, I'm going to get through this. Even though I felt like it was the worst I've ever felt because I ate whole peanuts. That was the thing about it. It was it looked like a chip on one side and then the other side was just covered in clusters of nuts. Like I could not have eaten anything worse. I mean, it's just a great thing to serve anaphylactics in the dark, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> like a surprise peanut chip. Well, yeah, I got to learn peanut braille. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or nut braille. So that was the last time that I was on that I yes. nearly died. And then recently you've nearly died as well, though. Well, yeah, last year. So, um, well, basically I got golden staff, which... Is the best kind of staff. Yeah. Like uh, like everyone knows, like you kind of, you've heard of it, but you may not know about it, but you know I, it's shit. I would suggest that no one really knows what it is. It's no. one of those things you hear about 
and you've heard, like Legionnaire's disease. Yeah. I don't really know what it is. Yeah, I know I'm, it's no good. I'm a ninja cockle. You don't want it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. definitely don't want Legionnaire's been ninja cockle or golden staff. No, not at not the same really time. not sure what either of them are. <laughs> no, but, um, well, I know a lot about it now, but I thought I'd hurt myself at the gym. So we'd I'd done this sort of PT session and we'd done 110 burpees during that session, right? So that, that hurt. too many. Yeah. The last 95 will get you. Yeah. <laughs> And so I thought I'd hurt. So it was like mid back. I started getting this pain and I thought obviously from overexertion, there's a lot of flex going through your back. And I went to the osteo and she was like, you've sprained your back. And I was like, makes sense to me. Yeah. So that was on a Wednesday. And you know, well, you would know this about like back pain. The best thing to always do is consult a non-qualified medical practitioner. <laughs> well, yeah. And you know, like when you go to your, your chemist and you're talking to the chemist and usually you don't listen to anything. They say, I oh, don't have those with alcohol. You're like, fuck yeah. off, mate. Whatever, you're not right? you're not a doctor. You don't tell me what to do. Yeah, and then when you need him, you're like, "Come on, mate, you're almost a doctor. Yeah, exactly. You studied a bit hard. What do you reckon? <laughs> we would have been okay. I've got this brain behind my. Eye. I've got this like <laughs> pain behind my eye. What is that? Have you got a pill for that? Yeah, is there so a, I can get over the counter. Is, is there a swish? Yeah. Is there a mouthwash I can take? Yeah, I can smell toast at all times. Is that something you guys can? <laughs> so, by the Sunday. So I, I had to do a gig on a, on the Friday night and the Saturday night. And the Friday night, I was in a lot of pain, like a lot of back pain. And I, it just wasn't getting better. I went to the osteo twice. And they were like, oh, that's weird that you haven't improved. Um, and obviously, you know what it's like with back pain. It's just incredible because you just you tend to use your back a fair bit in life. Yeah, standing up, sitting yeah, down, laying down. Moving. Everything. <laughs> just being alive. You know when you lick your lips and it hurts? You're just yeah. like, just a little lick and you're like, oh. I was at a point when my back was at its worst and I was in the States and I remember it clearly where to sleep half an hour, I would have to get up and walk and stretch for 45 minutes. So during the night, like wake with pain, wake with pain and to the capacity to stretch my back out, it would take 45 minutes. Then I could get another 30 minutes sleep. Then I would have to get up for another 45 minutes, walk and stretch in this apartment. Then to get another 30 minutes. It was, it was like, Driving me insane. Yeah, I can see how. Like a, a, a comic at a, a show offered me some expired Vicodin and I said, yes, sir. Absolutely. I will absolutely have that. I need 45 minutes sleep. I mean, I understand it so much when I see those people who overdose or get addicted to prescription drugs yeah. because when you hurt your back or around that area, the pain can just be so debilitating to the rest of your life that you are willing to try anything. Well, yeah, because you, you, you just... You're incapacitated, like totally. So Friday night I did a gig and it is amazing. They talk about, you know, Dr. Footlights, how you've got the adrenaline rush when you get on stage and I was fine. Like I was actually okay and felt okay afterwards and then was really sore that Friday night. Then Laugh, come, laughter is indeed the best medicine, Adam. <laughs> really fucking helps for a little while. Yeah. Um, as long as you could just do a gig every minute Constantly, of the day. yeah, yeah. Um, so then I got to the Saturday, had to do a gig again and this time I was like in debilitating pain like was just thinking this is just not getting better but still hadn't put anything together but on that Saturday night after I'd done that gig I came home and I had the shakes and I started getting all hot and cold I'm like fuck I'm getting the flu as well like I'm having a really bad run here so by Sunday amazingly Sunday morning I woke up was totally fine I thought oh whatever it was it's gone and then about three o'clock in the afternoon it all came in one hit massive back pain shivering and stuff was lying down trying to sleep and was shaking. And I thought, no, nah, I've got to get myself to hospital. And so I went into hospital and they instantly said, you've got an infection, like you're running a fever. We don't know what it is. And then they worked it out. So basically when you get golden staff, so you either get golden staff, it's like an open wound thing that you get. So you either get it from being in hospital and having an operation yeah. or shooting up. 
and I was shooting up in hospitals. Just <laughs> but, sitting in the emergency room. And the room. weird thing was, it wasn't even like you weren't even a patient. No, no, no. Why would no, I? no, no, no. I just, I like just to hang for out. the kids. Yeah. Just to amuse the kids. Just to see what's coming you in. You guys have seen train spotting, right? <laughs> yeah. That's how we roll. <laughs> yeah. Um, so they couldn't work out how I got it. And what happens when you get Golden Staff is it, uh, it goes to a place of trauma in your body. So that's why people get it oh. in their knee or their elbow or joints. So places they already have trauma? Yeah. So you might have, um, you know, wrenched your knee at some point and yeah. it's created some scar tissue little head there. So for whatever reason, it went to my back into, into one of my vertebrae. So I got an infected vertebra. So I don't know. Like when I never, I don't remember getting a back injury. Like, you know, I was very brave on the football field. So I probably backed into a pack or it could have been the time I rolled down the stairs at the hi-fi. Who knows? Who knows? Could be either one of those. Can't identify. Yeah. So basically your body. great if you could, by the way. Imagine that. If I could remember it. Think about, well, no, I mean, just think about if medical science were capable of literally being able to say, this is where you fucked it. Like, you know, that toothache you have now, it was that night when you ate all those things and didn't brush your teeth when you went to bed or, you know, this pain in your back that you have now, we've uh, been able to go back and identify it literally was the night you fell down the stairs at the hi-fi or don't worry about the night you fell down the stairs at the hi-fi because your back was already fucked. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. In fact, to be honest, weirdly enough, we can't quite explain it. (laughs) That made it slightly better. That's why you got through till here. You've done really well. So... Then your body tries to fight the infection, so it sends a lot of white blood cells, and when there's an overpouring of white blood cells, that creates an abscess. Okay, so you know you know what an abscess is like on your skin. Mm. Hurts a lot. Yep. I had an abscess in my epidural space, which is in between your spine and something else. Um, but that's where if you're in birth, in labor, they give you the- Yeah, the epidural. Yeah, that's where yeah. it goes, into that space. And so- yeah, well, I've had an epidural for my- Oh, right. When my back pain was at its worst, they gave me an epidural. And where do they inject you? amazing. Uh, I did not see exactly because I had my face the other direction. Of course. Well, because they do it in a, in a, uh, in a CAT scan machine or. Yeah. Okay. Oh, right. They don't do it. A machine does it? Is that. Well, no, they do it, but via some. Well, actually, you know what? I I literally don't know because you're face down, but you go into one of those giant machines and it takes like a long time and it's all very, they're doing like whatever the scans of you and like knowing exactly where to put it in. And it's like quite a, but it feels, I mean, you're numb from the waist down basically. Yeah. Did you wear yourself? Well, they tell you, how's this? They tell you, well, they're meant to tell you Mm -hmm. that it will feel like you'll wet yourself. Okay. So, cause when the, it goes in. Your back, and yeah. it actually the blood pumps it down the body, so yep. you get this sensation as if you are wetting yourself because yeah, it goes all warm down, right. your, down your legs. They're meant to tell you that, They're yeah, meant right. to go, <laughs> yeah, but okay. when I got it, they yeah. didn't tell me that. Good, and so I the only thing that was making what was otherwise a very pleasurable <laughs> yeah. experience feel a bit weird was oh, I'm, I think I've wet myself. If there's a place to wet yourself, though, hospital's a place to do it, yeah. Well, it wasn't a hospital, it was like a medical clinic of ah, some kind. It's not quite a hospital. I'm happy to wet myself in a hospital, but this was like in Double Bay. It was quite a nice place. (laughs) (laughs) I went to the coals there. It would have been embarrassing to, you know, pop down the coals and run into someone who knows that I wet myself upstairs. Old epidural piss pants. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Um, All right. So, uh, so yeah, I had that. What happens? I had that abscess in my uh, epidural space, and the one thing they were worried about, apart from, um, they were worried that I was getting like toxic shock sort of thing, like. Turning septic, so they're really worried about that. But uh, because it was so close to the spinal cord, oh, that's what it's in between. 
in between the spine and the spinal cord. Okay. So it was about like half a millimeter from the spinal cord. And they told me, they said, there's a massive chance you won't walk. So they dropped that on me really early on. And I remember when I heard that, I was just like, fuck that. Like I'm, I just refused to believe it. And the pain I was in for like, I reckon four days was 10 out of 10, like just redlining pain. I was on, uh, endone morphine. I was on a ketamine drip for two days. And still pain. Like, how does that work? Cause I've, I've often thought about that, which is that idea of going, are the drugs, are they able to drug you to an extent that you're not feeling that pain or like, do they you dull have, it. do you, yeah, they dull it. They right? dull it. Yeah. But, but I could feel when it was starting to wear off. So I'd be hitting the nurse buzzer and going, it's coming back. You've got to get, you know, yeah. the morphine into me straight away. Um, and then, yeah, the, the, the ketamine drip. And so just being in that much pain, I've never been in anything close to it. And you know, when, you know, doctors will go, what, what sort of pain are you feeling? And you'd be like, yeah. oh, five or six. Now, if I go into the doctor, it means I'm sitting at a two because it's not proper pain. Right. Like I know. At one point, two doctors came in and I said, can I please be in a coma? And they said, no, no, we can't do that. And I'm like, I'm, I'm not joking here. Yeah. I, no, no. I want a coma. Give me, give me the yeah. coma doc. Just wake, <laughs> Come me, on, mate. wake me up in six months. Yeah. Yeah. It's all fixed when up. It's all fixed up. I've just... always wanted to grow a proper beard. <laughs> Don't shake me. Yeah. I want people to hear what music people play yeah. to me. I want to hear what books they read. Exactly. I want to check out for a I little bit. I just need to lie down. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but they said that's got its own set of complications, which I was, I said, I'm more You're than like, willing. I'm willing to roll the dice. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. Let's cause they, you know, they have to put the feeding tube yep. down your, down your throat. Um, so they wouldn't, they wouldn't give me that, uh, which was disappointing. But, and the other thing they wouldn't do is they wouldn't operate cause they just said that's got its own set of complications. So I just had to write it out. So how long does that take? I was in that kind of pain for about four or five days. And then it slowly started to drop off. I was still like sitting up pretty high, but not, certainly not a, a 10 out of 10. And then the last few days, cause the other thing they do is they kept coming in to check my legs. Cause they wanted to know if I got any uh, tingling or numbness or anything like that. And so what would set off the pain would be them moving my legs around. And so as I'd get comfortable and it would, you know, drop down to, you know, maybe an eight or a nine, they'd come in and move my legs. And I'd be like, you're fucking starting this again. Like, and I you'd start to get really angry in the hospital, you know, at them for doing, you know, for, I knew they were doing their job. I knew they had to do it, but it was just like, I've just dropped from 10. Please leave me alone for a bit. Um, so you've had two times in your life. Are these the only two times? Uh, or has there been other times that you've been that sort of yeah, there's close been, to death? There was another peanut incident. Okay. Yeah. So three times in your life. How long, how old were you when the first one happened? Oh, uh, in my thirties. Okay. Yeah. All right. So yeah. yeah in the last 15 years, yeah. there's been three times. Yep. You're already. Could have it, said last 10 years if you wanted to. Okay. I'm not 50. Well, I mean, you said in your thirties, <laughs> yeah. I took from 30. I was <laughs> like you. to mid, I would, like it was a rough generalization. <laughs> okay. Yeah. okay. In the last 11 years. Thank you. Adam, <laughs> um, at an age where people all are already exploring the idea that they are mortal, mm -hmm. you know, like you get to like, I'm 45 now. Yeah. Um, and that's officially middle age. 
And I know that because when you're 45, the sort of thing you do is look up in the dictionary what is officially middle age, and it turns out 45. So, 45. So they're giving you 90. 45 to, no, 45, well, I guess they are. 45 yeah. to 65 is considered middle age. Oh, that period. Yeah, yeah. okay. So, um, so I've just become middle age. But certainly I'm, I'm willing to bet, put some pretty good money on the fact that I am further into my life than my life has to go. Right? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yep. You know, it could end next week. We, no Absolutely. one knows. Yeah. We but, can organize that. Yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, even at its best, it's probably going to go no further than what it's already come. Yeah. Right? Yep. So from now on, you're closer to your death than you are to your birth. And, but you've actually had some real moments where that was tested a few times. Yeah. I normally ask at the end of the podcast, do you think about death? But it feels to me like... I should ask it now because as someone who's got skirted a little close to death a few times, is death and the presence of death in your life changed the way that you live your life at all? I, the one thing that happened after I came out of hospital, probably not from the, the Bali incident because I reckon I was just uh, – I was out of it really quickly and just because I was drunk too and it, it sort of like it was a quick spike and then was over. So like, you know, if – it's a little bit slower than this, but if you – almost stepped in front of a bus and you went, fuck, that was close. But you never, you right. don't think of it in the greater scene. Yeah, of like, you oh, don't remember it as like, I almost died. But, yeah, but it could have. Technically, you almost died. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But uh, with, with the hospital one was like, you know, eight days of sitting there going, you came close to, you know, you looked over the edge. What I got out of that was just, um, I was so much more relaxed when I got out of hospital. Like just did not, my because I, I could be short-fused occasionally, you know, when you're in traffic and you just get really pissed off with people and um, nothing bothered me. You know, like you'd be at the supermarket with the self-service checkout, the little red light would go off. I'd be like, that's fine. You know, i got time to kill. You know, I don't have to be anywhere. There's no rush. So there's just, I think I've kind of found that no sense of urgency just to back off and start to enjoy things a little bit more. Whereas before it'd be like, yep, that's done. What's next? Come on, come on. You know, this has got to happen. And now it just seems hopefully that I'm, and I'm still trying to stay with it because it was about six or seven months ago now, but just to pull back and just enjoy things for what they are. Like, you know, people talk about living in the now, but just, I've never been able to do that. It's always been what's next, tick that off, move on look at the next project. Why aren't you doing this? Always look at the stuff that I'm not doing rather than the things that I am. Uh, so I always ask on the podcast, do you have a philosophy? And it feels like, you know, we've come to a pretty natural yeah. point to ask that question. Do you have one or is like, is, has your perspective changed in that area since what has happened? Like, what do you think your attitude to life is now? Uh, I mean, the one, th my attitude to life is to, to be a lot more grateful for the things that are going on. Um, which I, I just don't think I had because I'd always be looking in the other lane, seeing what other people were doing and, you know, just be like, oh, why did that person get that job and stuff? And now you just take stock and just go, yeah, you know, your life's, life's pretty good. And especially when you've got it. Um, and you know, the idea that I could have been wheelchair bound was millimeters away from that happening. And to just go, I should be very grateful for the life that I, I kind of have now. And just to be patient, you know, I, I don't think I, um, I'm trying not to force things as much and I, and I have to catch myself cause it's been, you know, ingrained for so long for at least 30 to 45 years. Um, 
to catch myself and just to go, no, enjoy what's around you and what you've got. And, you know, just to accept, to accept the, what I'm, what I've got at the moment isn't as bad as sometimes I think it is. That, that response, I, I, it's one of those things where, when you mention that sometimes on the podcast, what happens is somebody says something that kind of lands close to home for me. Mm. And, you know, we're guys of a similar age, you know, 30 to 45. Yep. And, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, white, straight guys, the yeah. most discriminated against yeah, exactly. group in modern day society. Um, uh, I, I think that one of the things that we share is that idea of, you know, perhaps, you know, thinking about what's next more than appreciating what we have now. Absolutely. And there are people within our social group and our friends who are much better at appreciating what they have now and celebrating what they have now and being comfortable with going, no, 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 I deserve this and this is what I've earned and this is great what we have. And I, I feel like something that the two of us share is that almost a hesitance to be able to like enjoy or celebrate the thing that we've achieved. Because it'll come undone. And then, yeah. So what I want to ask you is, why do you think that is? I think because I've seen how fleeting things can be. So, um, like, I think what you were saying there is our, the drive that we had got us to a certain point and it was, it was really healthy and it was good because, you know, it, uh, got us into stand up and made us, you know, work hard and stuff, but then we didn't appreciate anything that we got. And now I just feel like it's time to just enjoy it because I, I guess I kind of thought, are there going to be any periods where I sit back and, and actually look at things and go, yeah, that was a good job or that was a good show or I did really well on that. Whereas, you know, if I kept living the life I did, it would just be all like, ah, oh, that wasn't that great or just be disappointed in everything I did. And so to try and step outside the thought process that I've always had and just to take on this new one. And it kind of, it just means that I, I get to question myself a little bit more, which I, I don't think I really did. Cause I was so happy living the way that I, well, not happy, but I was just, that's the way it was. Well, you can get stuck in the rhythm of it to a certain degree as yeah. well. And there is a like nagging suspicion at the back of your mind of going, well, working this hard or having this attitude, you know, got me to where I am. Yeah. Like, but at what cost? I think is the, is the, is kind of the greater question. And that's where I guess I asked myself is if I had of not died, but if it had, the story had to stop there, would I have been happy with where I was and would have, I, uh, would I have appreciated what I'd done to that point? And I don't think I would have. And so it's nice to go, you know what? I've been a comedy writer on television in Australia for, uh, like 18 years straight. 18 to 35 years. Yeah, absolutely. Straight. And I go, that, that's, a, that's a pretty, that's a good effort. It hurts me to fucking right. say that and admit that it's a good effort. You know, it's like, I, if I say that, I'm going to jinx myself. Your career is an adult. Yeah. And chances are when your career is an adult, like, I mean, I've done the comedy festival 23 years in a row. Yeah. Right. And like, like in a, just a, if you step back and just look at it in a, the way that I would view other people who are not myself. You would just have to go, it's, it's gone fine. Like you're fine. And if you have a dud year or if you had a year yeah. off or if you went and, you know, painted for a year or wrote a book or walked around Australia or whatever the fuck it was, people would be fine with it. And you'd come back and everything would still be fine. But my brain yes. doesn't let me think that that is something that I could do. Yeah, no, I, I, complete, I 
understand that logic 100% of just never taking your foot off the pedal because you just don't know what's going to happen in that time. Um, and I don't know where that fear sort of came from of just pushing yourself that hard. And I, I guess like for me, it was trying to prove people wrong, I suppose. Maybe that came from like high school and stuff and just going, no, you know, I, cause I, I don't think I was that, you know, I, fin- I didn't do go beyond high school and I've always felt really self-conscious about that. So I make, I go out of my way and this is not to prove to anything. I just enjoy learning, but it's not at, uh, you know, um, ter- a tertiary level sort of thing, or it's not university studies, but a lot, a, I enjoy it. But it's something that sticks with me that I think that I'm like less of a person because I haven't done it. But that's just in my head. No, I don't think. But also, there are that. many people who got a degree and then haven't learned anything since they were 21. Well, yeah, there is that. You know, and I, I just, I really enjoy learning, and that's one thing I've always uh, been really keen on in my life. Is I, I don't know about a subject, I'll go and you know read a book on it and just try and learn more about it because I just, it just fascinates me. I, don't, I hate not knowing about something. Uh, what is it that you are interested in at the moment? Like, is there something particular that you want to learn about, or is there something perhaps? The one that I think about when you think of, there's a big pile of books next to my desk because I mm. have these two potential me's in my head. Yep. The one that like lives the life that I actually live <laughs> yeah, yeah. and the one who in airports think I can optimistically read three books in a week. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. I, I buy a lot more books than I read, Yeah. but it hasn't stopped me from buying books. So the pile next to my desk at home gets bigger and bigger and bigger in the idea that at some stage I'll have all this free time where I can read all those books. Yeah. Now, the reason I bought those books is I'm interested in what those books are about. Yeah, totally. But and I if have... you ever started with them, you would be into them, but right. it's just hard to to get to that point. So what is it that you fill your brain up with when you want to learn about something? Uh, a, a lot of times, because I, I read so much, well, I guess it's all nonfiction. That makes sense from what we've been speaking about. But um, I've been fascinated by... ISIS and jihadis and uh, people fighting for God. Um, I read a great book about the Crusades and how, you know, the Christians going through um, the Middle East in the 1100s and stuff and just the radicalness. I I can't understand that, but I guess I can from a stand-up point of view, but to do that for something that's unseen that is from, you know, a book that's essentially fiction, I don't understand how people can be that committed and radical to something. Um, and well, I'm fascinated by that. I, I would firstly like to thank you from say, for saying I'm fascinated by ISIS because it now means I've got another 10,000 downloads from ACO agents <laughs> yeah, great. on this podcast this week. Um, did you have a religious belief? Like we record this in a week, it'll come out, um, well, only like a, a fortnight or so from now. So yep. People will remember this time, but when we're recording this, um, a very prominent member of the Australian clergy and the guy who was third in line at the Vatican has yep. been at this stage uh, convicted of being like a, a pedophile in the church. Um, were you raised in organized religion of some kind? We started out uh, Catholic. Mum was, mum tried to get us to go Catholic. Dad hated, he was brought up a Catholic and hated it because he always used to get beaten by the nuns and said they're all you know, money grabbing pedophiles and stuff. So he was so anti that mum just gave up because he, uh, mum didn't drive. Dad was our only way to get to Sunday school because we didn't go to Catholic primary schools and mum just went, it's too hard. And so we just drifted off from when I was about maybe eight. So no, not really. And so did you have an, uh, like, 
a, a belief in something when you were young? Like, yeah, I think so. I think I yeah. believed in God, but only because that's what, you know, mum would have taught us and we would have gone to church when we were younger on Sunday mornings. But beyond that, um, even mum, she'll only go to mass at Easter and Christmas now, just the big, the big ones, like, yeah. you know, like the Ashes Day test or something yeah, like exactly. that. Yeah. yeah, we go to the cricket on Boxing Day, but <laughs> yeah. we're, not, we're not going to a big bash game. No, exactly. Yeah, yeah that's what mum's like with, with, with Jesus, with the... The J-Man. I mean, it's on every night if you want to go. But... Yeah, that's right. But she's a, she's a true one. She won't go to a, a 20-minute you know, yeah. mass. She, she'll go to the Just the, the big one. ones. Yeah. I'll yeah. go for Christmas. Yeah. I'll go for Easter. Yeah. Even if it didn't. I remember going to ones that were in Latin and just going. Like, it was so, so boring. And I, I don't know. I just never connected to it. Uh, so do you remember how old you were when you, like, knew in your head this is like bullshit like well at least that you you were like confident enough to say to somebody else this is not what i believe yeah i reckon it would have been in my early 20s i think i just started to i think i just kept it in the back of my head that i was a catholic but because that's what we were and i never kind of questioned it but it wasn't until i started reading about you know um you know books like uh, books about islam and books about you know the, the christians going through the middle east and all that kind of stuff and then just sort of questioned what are they really and sometimes I guess, you know, you need someone there or you want something like we all turn to something. And I'm sure even us non-Catholics will be like, come on, God, I just need, I need your help this time. But we're asking a higher being. I don't necessarily think it needs to be the one God, unless you're uh, Muslim. Well, I mean, again, like a lot of red flags on this <laughs> podcast. So what do you believe then life is about? Because that's essentially at its heart. That's the, you know, what this podcast is about, which is that idea of going, what, when you get up in the morning, when you think about what your life is about in a general sense, yep. what do you think it is about? I used to think it was about, um, everyone trying to get along and help each other, you know, uh, people being courteous and, um, just looking out for each other. And I, f I find of late that's really gone. Like I get infuriated when, uh, newspaper, online papers, um, you know, put, um, like there'll be a story about you, for example, and they'll be like, uh, you know, they'll put people's tweets up about you and I yeah. go, you know, you basically, you are quoting people at the pub or you, everyone has access but to the But not just internet. people at the pub. Angry Often people. the dickhead at the pub. Yeah, exactly. Often the dickhead outside the pub shouting at the pub because yeah. you got kicked out of the pub. Yeah, you're giving oxygen to a fuckwit. And yeah. that, that really bothers me <laughs> because they go looking for it. They look, they they type in the search words that they need. Right. It comes up and you go, the only qualification that person has is the internet. And if you're in Australia, that's fucking everyone. So they, they go, oh, so-and-so said this. Who cares? You know, and just, they just really... Add, they just add fuel to that fire of just that nastiness that exists out there. And, you know, we're all gossipy. I'm not saying that people don't do it. But the fact that they can add that to a story and, or make a story out of nothing really it just – it really gets me down that that's kind of what, um, in a journalistic sense, we've become. Well, I would argue that our, um, our human capacity – so, you know, in the same way as we crave sugar, and so if you feed people mostly sugar, eventually they get a higher tolerance to sugar and yep. want more sugar, right? But you can live without sugar. Yeah. But sugar is something that in our brains, the way our body responds to these sort of things, is because we evolved as human beings and sugar was a good burst of nutrition or whatever. And, yeah, you know, yeah. like, so our brain works like that. In the same way, yes, we all have a natural 
capacity to gossip. Of course. Like sometimes it's fun. Sometimes my favorite stories are things that I tell about the people I love the most in the entire world <laughs> behind their back. Yeah, you know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. Like who doesn't? And if you don't like and in the same way as I understand that if I'm doing that, that means that those same people are also doing that about me. Yeah. You've just got to live with both of those yeah. things. It took me a while to work that out, but yeah, I'll oh, figure that out. It takes us all a while yeah. to work Fuck, that no out. No one gossips yeah. about me. This is great. <laughs> I'm the one <laughs> <Yeah>. person. <laughs> um, so you've, and when you learn to accept that, like it's a much better place to be in your life. The, the idea that someone, sometimes the people who say the meanest things yeah. about you are the people who actually. Yeah. Love you the most. But that natural human emotion has been weaponized by the news media or weaponized by the internet to, because these companies don't exist if they don't have our attention. And they've realized that the best way to get our attention isn't to write an article about, um, you know, the deep, or the deep political implications of something in the Middle East that requires 3,000 words yeah, to, yeah. you know, if they, you know, tell you about Gordon Ramsay's dwarf porn double who was found <laughs> dead in a badger hole, then we're going to, we're going to click on that story. Well, that is a shame. I but bet it was a shame. I, th- I think the one thing, like they do promote that, but I still ultimately think that humans on instinct have that capacity to be lovely. Um, you know, when, if you saw someone fall in the street, people just without thinking rush over to it, you don't like, or that's probably not the best example, but you know, you, you see people who are, you know, pulling people from burning cars and stuff without second thought. It's still, we still have that capacity to be great people, but we've, we've not focusing on that anymore. And I think that's just because it doesn't, like you're saying, it doesn't sell papers, lovely stuff. How does that? Uh, like manifest itself to use a horrible word, but like in your life, like, are you, do you find yourself trying to do things that are, you know, more down that road into yeah. that sort of way? I think, um, and I hope, you know, the people in my life would agree, but, uh, I, I think I try and help people out a lot more than sometimes I feel like it comes back at me. Um, like I'll go out of my way to, you know, look out for people and to try and help people, where I can, like in the, the industry that I'm in, that I'm in. And I know, you, you know, you've done that as you know, during your career where you've had the opportunity to help someone out. Um, and I've always found that just a really great trait. And I've, um, yeah, I, I try and do that in my life to, to help people out or, you know, send a text if so, I, I think that someone might be having a tough time or, you know, just to think about people and, and to not only think, but to act on it, to just go, Hey man, you know, just seeing how you are, you cool. They don't have to respond to whatever, but just to know that you know sometimes people are thinking about you and they don't you know talk about it. It is, uh, it has its own reward. It doesn't always have its own reward, of course. Like not at you, all. You don't you, do it for that, and you shouldn't do it for that. No. Um, but it also is a muscle that you need to work. I reckon. Yep. Like you, you know, go out of your way to do it. I was um, just the other day. I'd been at. Um, can't remember what it was, but some some sort of meeting or medical appointment or something, and I wasn't in the best of all moods, yeah. and I had to uh, get an Uber back back home, and I got in the Uber, and it was clear to me from the start that this woman was going to be a very very chatty woman, yep. you know. Yep. And I think in the past I would have been definitely been polite, yeah, but I yeah. would have within my politeness sort of made a point that you made, wanted her to yeah, shut the fuck up, yeah, or at least just dial it down, yeah, that we yeah, weren't going to yeah. like talk. Yeah. For the entire, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, half yeah. an hour full on. We might, you know, occasionally exchange pleasantries or observations, yeah, but yeah. it wasn't going to be like a... Yeah. yeah. It's just a road trip. Yeah. But it felt like a road trip from yeah. the minute I got in. And as it turns out, 
like, and but I remember distinctly thinking, okay, you know what? Give away your resentment that you didn't want to talk or that you're whatever, and just, you know what? This is what's happening. Just do it, right? Like, be into it rather than yeah. be resentful of the fact that it's happening. So I ended up having this really delightful conversation with this woman. It turned out that she had, um, her husband had died 12 years ago, love of her life, never, never, you know, met anyone again, said she probably never will meet anyone again. She had to raise like four kids, you know, herself and her husband had died. Like I heard, you know, the whole story about their lives and, and what she was doing. And she, it was actually, it turns out just like this really incredible woman, like with this incredible story. And, uh, and then we started talking about comedy because, you know, she yeah, asked me yeah. what I did and whatever. And Did that hurt you that she didn't know? No idea. No idea <laughs> she knew who I was. But uh, you'll love this even more. She knows most of her comedians from um, I'm a Celebrity, Get Me Out of Here. Right. So big fan of Nazim, <laughs> yep, yep. Uh, despite the fact that she couldn't quite remember what his name was. <laughs> That's okay. But she had a crack yep. that in other people's mouths might have sounded a bit racist, <laughs> sure. but in hers was delightful. Yeah. Um, but that was her world and her worldview. And anyway, I did, I thought nothing much more of it, you know, but, um, a couple of days later, like I get this Instagram message from somebody that I don't know and it was her daughter and you know, that she, she wrote me this really lovely message about the conversation that I'd had with her mom and she just wanted to pass it on and whatever it, I assume that without the message, you hope that those sort of things happen regardless. You hope, you hope that the person you talk to in the Uber goes home and tells their wife or husband or kid that they had this like fun person in the Uber and they had a nice conversation about something. Yeah. You might not always get the validation back. You might not always know that you were the nicest customer they had that day or whatever, but you hope that you've still passed that on to them. Well, I mean, it, it doesn't take much to make someone's day, you know, and it, and it can, it can be easy, even easier to ruin someone's day. And the, the one thing I've tried to think over the last few years is, um, you don't always know what's happening in someone's life. So, you know, when you go into a store, like you go into the Telstra store, you got a problem with your phone and you right. go in, you're already ready for a fight. And you're like, maybe this is the fifth fight this person's had and you're just being an asshole for right. no reason. And they and, work at Telstra in the shop for $14 an hour. Exactly, or and exactly. Like, and you go in, you know, itching yeah. for a fight. So. And so I've tried to think maybe they're having a shit day too, you know, maybe just try and be nicer. That's what I've tried to be over the last few years. And, like I've even taken a saying, you know, when I'm leaving wherever, I was just saying, having a great, have a great day, you know, just that's how I'll leave it, you know, in a shop or wherever. Um, because I don't have a huge capacity to smile when I say hello and stuff. I'm not overly friendly. So I try and just get it across whichever way I can. It's interesting to me. Uh, I think that sometimes if people only know you from your comedy, that your comedy is quite, can be. At, at like it's, you know, harshest. Yeah. Quite harsh. Yeah. Dark. Dark. But I don't think that you particularly strike me as like in my friendship group, a person who comes across as being, you know, troubled or like, you know, kind of dark, like dark in the way that perhaps your comedy is dark. Yeah. Where, where did the love of like the darker comedy come from? I think I just saw a capacity to find humor in everything. And I, I, I guess I realized, you know, as, as I've gone on and the more shows you do that not everyone had that. So I think just for me early on, I just found like everything could be funny to me. So therefore, like, you know, saying the gossiping thing, you just go, oh, it happens everywhere. And then you start to realize that like, oh, okay, 
not everyone finds everything as funny as I do, particularly about, you know, blacker, darker topics. So you've had a couple of, um, you know, moments along the journey where, you know, a joke or two have, uh, like, you know, attracted the attention of, you know, a whole bunch the of world. people who've been mad about it. Well, the world, yes. So talk us through. So I wrote a, uh, a God, the, the hardest thing about telling these stories, I have to tell, I have to tell the tweet because, uh, you know, otherwise it just doesn't work. So a plane had crashed in South America with a soccer team on it. And it was the initial headline. It was like a breaking news thing. And I saw that. And instantly, this is my thought process. I'm not defending what I wrote, but I thought, remember that was that movie about the football yeah, team that went alive. down in the Andes? Yeah. Ethan Hawke. And they lived. They ate each other. Ate each other. Yeah. And so in my head, that was the joke I was trying to formulate based on that event yeah. rather than the actual plane Soccer crash. team crash in the mountains. Yeah. They all ate each other. Yes. It's the obvious place to go. So I said, soccer team crash in the mountains. Uh, the survivors were heard yelling penalty, penalty, right? <laughs> So I put that up, um, and about half an hour later, it was getting a lot more action than I'd gotten for a lot of tweets, and I thought, okay. And then I started looking at some of them, and there were some very angry people, and I thought, fuck, I've got to pull this down, but that didn't matter. By then, people have screenshotted it, and then the pylon started. So this was on a Tuesday night in Melbourne, and then it rolled around the world. As time zones woke up, I got hate from you could you could pick where people were waking up for times, and I basically shut down my twi- uh, shut down my Facebook, shut down my Instagram, kept my Twitter open so that they had somewhere to to have a go at me. Um, but you know, this is where I know that there's a lot of hate out there because you know people posted my phone number, they posted my address. You know, they were like, um, they'd say stuff like, if you've got nothing to do, get into this bloke. This is what he said. And they'd share it around, which I, I was talking to Tom Gleason about it. And he said it was really weird in that you're so disgusted by it, yet you show everyone. It's like, if you're so disgusted, you would not show it. Yeah. You'd be like, this is this guy's a fucking idiot. Don't give him anything. Oh, I'm, m- millions more people are finding out about it. The yes. best way, if they were so disgusted, the best way to be disgusted about it was to let it hang like any of your other tweets that like... Yeah. 200 people saw. Just give it nothing. And then just move on. So the pylon was incredible and just the hatred. And it, I, when it happens to you, you are the center of the universe. So I felt like the whole world was looking at me. Like I would so be t- in the street. Talk me through like in time, mm-hmm. like from when you wrote the tweet yep. to how you gradually, like it unfolded and how you felt. And can you remember that? Can you remember like yeah. that moment we go, well, a lot of people are looking at this. Like, yeah. And I remember, uh, so I wrote, I wrote an apology straight away. As soon as I realized that people were starting to hate it, I was like, pull it down. Um, cause it was someone, I can't even remember who it was. It was a sports journal that just went, no. And I was like, oh, okay, I've overstepped the line here and I hadn't seen it. Pulled it down, wrote an apology and then it doesn't matter. And they're like, oh, this fucking idiot tried to apologize. And then the tweets really started to come in thick and fast. And that's when I like started to get the shakes and I told uh, my girlfriend at the time, Steph, about it. Um, she's been through a lot with me. <laughs> um, and we were trying to work out a just a path for me to go down. Like, what do we do? How do we weather this storm? And so she said, shut down all your social media. And I said, I'll keep Twitter open because you're just going to need it. Otherwise, I'll find some way else to get at me. Um, well, the other thing is, like, I mean... <sighs> It must be a bit of a surprise at that point because I, I am now at a point in my career where enough of those style of things have happened. Yeah. Occasionally I say or do something that ends up being a thing. Yeah. And 
It doesn't make any of those things easier, but you're like, okay, I guess this is part of the cost of doing business yeah, as me. This is the process. But for you, that wasn't really necessarily like you are a very well established comedian and like a you know very good and established comedy writer, but not necessarily the sort of person that it wasn't like you know Neil Patrick Harris has sent out some bad taste tweet or whatever. Yeah, yeah. Like people have, you know, really gone out of their way to not like what you've <laughs> written down here. It was weird feeling so hated. Yeah. So concentrate, and like I was saying uh, before, it feels like you are the center of the universe. So I felt that everyone was talking about it because to me, they all were, because that's all I saw coming in. You know, the Facebook messages were piling up and, you know, I was getting friends to clear them, just going, get it out of my inbox. Yeah, yeah, I didn't. And then, because it was a Brazilian soccer team, all this stuff started coming in from South America and they really piled on and, you know, I learned a lot of Portuguese. Um and so it lasted, like I was on The View. They talked about it on The View. Are you serious? Yeah, yeah. Because it was like one of those things, look at what this comedian said, and then they discuss it. Did you, have you watched no, the no, episode of The Pete View? Pete Hellier told me it was on, and he's like, we've got it. And I was like, I, I can't, I can't watch this. And I even, a few months down the track, I was going to talk about it, because it was in December, and I wanted to maybe talk about it in my comedy festival show, and even just reading some of the stuff to be able to talk about it. I just went, this is not good for me. It's taken me back to a really bad time, and I just went, I'm going to leave it in that past. It's where it belongs. And, you know, and I, I, I still feel horrible that, I, that that's what came of it. I didn't mean it in that way, but I just I went too quick, and I completely, you know, I honestly completely fucked it. Oh, you made a bad joke, but, yeah. like, I mean, you make a lot of jokes, and occasionally you're going to make a bad one. The one thing like, I was... You I, know, I, Don Bradman made a duck in his final innings, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. you, you, no one... Yeah, you know, hits a hundred every time, and and sometimes when you walk on a tightrope, you. And the other thing about that is that you were apologetic. Like, yes. I can understand the mob coming after someone who was like, "No, I stand by this, yeah, and this yeah. is exactly." But you were like, "No, oh, yeah, no, you know what? Yeah. I got this wrong." Yeah, I'm sorry. I tried something. Yeah, and then I, you know what? I went over the line a little bit on this one. But see, then and, they're not looking at your Twitter feed; they're just yeah. looking at the photo that they've been sent, the yeah. screenshot. The the only thing that I was slightly felt better about is I knew it wasn't racist or sexist. Yeah. So that kind of wasn't like you go, oh, you're fucking like it was. You didn't have plans to tour Brazil anyway. No, no. And and I'm not trying to justify it. I know it sounds like I am, but this is just what was playing out in my head. Oh, but I don't think that context necessarily needs to be justification. You can explain what you were thinking without saying like, I mean, mate, the thing about like being this old is that you realize you're never going to get good at life. Yeah. Like when I was little, yeah, I just yeah. assumed at some stage you got good at life. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, you go to school and you learn how to do things and then eventually you become an adult yeah. and you know how perfect. to do things. Yeah. But you don't. In fact, I would argue that the older you get, the more and more that you are confused by life or the more and more fuck ups you've had along the way and the more and more things that you're making up for or having to learn from. Because you know too much. Right. Yeah. Or just you've had more time to make more mistakes and people make mistakes all the fucking time. Mm. Neil Armstrong fluffed the line when he walked onto the fucking moon. Yeah. Do you know how many times he would have rehearsed (laughs) that in his head on the way there? And even a guy who was able to make it to the moon fucked up the line (laughs) as he was going out there. We all fuck shit up, you know. 
Um, and he had a long ride back to <laughs> buzz there going, I, I would have got it right. Could have let me out there. I would have got it right. Michael Collins circling yeah. <laughs> circling the moon. What happened? What'd you what say? Happened? I didn't hear it. Mate, the line was on the wall the whole way up here. I was on the dark side of the moon. Yeah, it's no sorry, reception. Mate. No, I was like, I was listening to smooth. <laughs> um, we all fuck shit up, right? Yeah. It, it, and I think that if we ever go away from the capacity, which I think sometimes we verge on at the moment, and that's not to excuse people's mistakes, yeah. but I think that it's valid to judge people by how they address and try to recover from their mistakes. Yeah. Um, I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but Louis CK to me is a good example of someone who clearly did something for a very long time that was massively inappropriate, um, but probably would have had a way back to people's um, regard yep. if the comeback had been handled better than the comeback has been handled. Yes. It's been as much poisoned by the way that he's tried to come back to it yeah. without acknowledging what he's done and, yeah, and, and, it, and you know acknowledging that he's learnt from it than the initial thing. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe I'm the wrong person to talk about well, this. Well, it would have been like if I had said about all of the, the fans that came after me just going, oh, you can't handle it. Yeah. I, I didn't. Snowflakes. Yeah, yeah. I didn't go. Soy boys. I go, I understand it. <laughs> I did understand right. why. And I think for me, at least, it slowed me down in that process of wanting to be the first and the fastest to get the joke out, to just take that step and go, no, have a think about that. Yeah. Let that sit. doesn't need to be out now because in my head, it's like, if I don't put this out now, someone else is going to do it. And now you just go, no, just sit yeah. on that. And maybe don't put it out there. And have that, a little that kills thing. me not to put it out. Some of the stuff that I think that would be a good joke. And I just go, nah, just sit on that. So... What is your, like, what did you learn out of that? Because when you're in the middle of something like that, it really does feel like the end of the world. Yeah. I know it sounds silly probably to a lot of people who are listening to this that like, you But it's feel like, like when you fuck up at work. Yeah. It, no matter what your standing is or how big it is to you, it's a major fuck up. But you fucked up at work and everyone around the world heard about it. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's the thing. Like, it, was, <laughs> it was on a slightly grander yeah. scale, but still- I think it's you relative. You fucked up at work and they talked about it on The View. Yeah, yeah. Whoopi Goldberg had an opinion <laughs> yeah. on your bad day at work. Sharon Osbourne hated my guts. <laughs> so, you know, I, I I wonder if I can go on there. Okay, you guys remember me. <laughs> um, So it, it changes that you pause for a minute. Yep. How has it changed your overall view towards the comedy that you make? Because the other thing that you could – the bad lesson you could learn from something like that is to stop taking risks at the same time, right? Yeah. You could overcorrect. I think I know that if I was on stage, I could get away with it because I could, well, not with that same joke, but I would have more of an opportunity because you're there and you can talk through it afterwards and you, you can feel the, the, what the audience is you know, yeah. saying about you and to you. Whereas when you do it like that, it's just out in the ether and you've got no, got no more control over it. And I learned quickly too that people just love to shout something and then will probably even forget that they've even written anything. They just want to get in there, call you a cunt and move on. That idea of um, the piling on of mm. hatred. But then I think there's perhaps a another side to it, which is once you're through it, you realize that people do move on. And the totally. world moves on. Yeah. And this thing that you thought at the time was, you know, your darkest day turns out to be just another thing that happened. Took a while for that. Um, took a while for me to not think that people who had written stuff were still thinking about it. Um, 
But then I kind of started reading. I mean, I read, have you read John Ronson's book? Yep. So you've been publicly shamed. So that everyone was saying to me, you've got to read that book. Yep. I'm like, yeah, I, I really don't need to. No be reminded of what I, I went through. I am that book. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but I, I did eventually read it. Oh, you've got rickets? You should read I Can Jump Puddles. <laughs> yeah. It's great. You'll love it. Um, it did teach me that, you know, having seen it happen to other people and I feel their pain when they fuck up of just going, people do move on. And I, it also gave me the idea that it wasn't as bad as some of the other ones that have occurred, um, you know, where people have lost their jobs and lost livelihoods and they're so out there and people are just reminded of, you know, their tweets or things that they've done that you go, you can't move on from that. Are you less judgmental of other people or is that still like having been judged unfairly? Yeah. Does that make you less judgmental of other people or is there just still a natural part of human beings that, you know, is judgmental of others regardless of the self-awareness that something like that brings? No, I I think I can understand where you go. It, It was a moment that, you know, if it was something that wasn't, calculated that went on for years, then you go, okay. But if someone fucks up in a moment, you go, I completely understand how that happens. You know, you just, you wrote before you thought and you got yourself into trouble. So yeah, I, I, I can appreciate it. Uh, I don't condone it. But you appreciate yes. it. Yeah, exactly. Um, we should finish up soon, but um, I want to know where's your head at now comedically? Like, what are you doing now? Let's talk about that. But also what do you want to do? Like, you know, what's like, you know, the next, you know, uh, 10 to 15 years, you know, from when you're, uh, yeah, in my for, 45, <laughs> 45. <laughs> I, um, it was really weird after I got out of hospital, I just lost all confidence. We just did not want to get on stage. I don't know whether it was cause I felt embarrassed that I got sick or, um, just still didn't feel a hundred percent, but I didn't want to do any gigs. Didn't want to write any material. Just had felt, um, I don't know. There was no drive. Mm. I just stayed away from it. I'd... So what did you do? What were you doing in that time instead? Uh, I had to finish up. So I'm writing a book at the moment. So I had to finish. I was supposed to hand in the draft when I went into hospital. So that was a couple of weeks late. And then after that period, I kind of did nothing. I had time off from all my work. Um, and yeah, didn't write any stand up at all. And have just finished the second draft of the book and now I'm starting to write stand up again and being back on stage and really enjoying it. So it, it just, I don't know whether it was just because I was sick and it took a while, but I really felt it, it just knocked me around mentally. Um, what do you feel about having a break from it? Because it's a conversation I have with people all the time, you know, about there's a, there's a big part of me and, and look to contextualize this conversation, we're having it, you know, people are here at a couple of weeks out from the comedy festival, yeah. but we're about well, less than four weeks away from the comedy festival now. And that really just means that the last two or three months of my life have been shitty for me and shitty for everybody else who yeah. wants to do things with me because all I'm doing is obsessing about the show. Yeah. And I can never put enough work into it. And I'm always resentful of the fact that I couldn't go out and do another gig or you know, try another thing or, or yeah. whatever. And no one does that to me other than me. And this year it's been particularly... I think maybe because I've got a lot of other things going on as well, but it, it has had a very huge emotional toll on me this year. Yeah, okay. And I was like, gee, this has been three months of me feeling pretty sh- – like from the minute I get up in the morning until the minute I go to bed at night, even if I'm not thinking about the show, yeah, I'm thinking about the show. Absolutely. It is this dark shadow on me at all times, and often the thoughts I'm having about myself because of it are really negative. Yeah. Like, you know, I hate myself. I hate that I haven't – 
like I think I've actually probably done a lot of work on it. Like I, but my brain won't allow me to yeah, be no, in that I, headspace. My, I get that. My brain is in that headspace of you haven't done enough, or you're a, this is the year where it all falls apart, or that you're an absolute yeah, failure. They'll or find out this you've year. You've got nothing else. That, you're right. They'll find out this yeah, year. This is the year they find out. And so what that does is it keeps you on that treadmill. Don't write a book. Right. Well, tell, talk me through that. Fuck. What What is that process like? So the book that I'm writing, I went overseas with my dad a few years ago. I turned that into a comedy festival show and uh, I am now turning that into a book. And that is one of the worst processes I've ever been through in my life. So at least with stand-up, you can go out into a room, yeah. read it, you know, do it. Go, oh, that bit didn't work. You know, hate yourself. But then you can move on. You can fix it. You can throw it away, whatever. This is 70,000 words and someone's read like a chapter or two here and there and you are so close to it that you can't see it for what it is. You know, that you've read the jokes like 50 times and you just go, well, I think it's funny, but I, I can't tell anymore. And then you're adding stuff and you go, this is just fluff. This is shit. There's no depth to it. My God, you think stand up brings out the worst. Just, yeah, it was incredible. And, and to get yourself to do it was the discipline it took. It took the most discipline I've ever had uh, in myself to be able to write each day because I would set myself a word tag. It'd be like a thousand words today. And no matter how long that took me, that could take me two hours. That could take me eight or 10, but I'd be like, you've got to fucking do it. And I'd get myself out of the house. I couldn't be at home because I would, my house was so clean when I was trying to write the book because I'd be like, geez, that sock drawer, that sock drawer sounds, that sounds muddled. I should tidy that shit up. Sounds muddled. I can't write with a muddly sounding sock drawer. <laughs> no. So I'd go to the library and I'd be like, there's no real distractions here. At least I'm out of the house. And so I got the first draft back and they were like, you know, there's a, a few holes in it. And I, I was aware of that. And they said, we need a bit more depth in this one. It's the second draft they have now. And I'll get that back in about three or four weeks. Um. I'll be very interested to read it. Do we know what it's called? It's called Paris and Other Disappointments. And uh, how does your dad feel about the fact that you included him in a show and now are going to write a book about yours and his experiences? He was really good about it, actually. Like, Because um, he was a big part of the show. Um, I did a trial of the show and everyone kind of said, oh, we'd love to hear what your dad thought. And I thought that's a really great um, idea. And so the tool that I used in the show is I had Dave O'Neill, another comedian, interview dad. And dad had met him a few times, so I felt comfortable with him. And he asked questions to dad about the, the trip. And then I played those back into the show. So I played dad as he was kind of, you know, very weird when we were overseas. And I think people thought I was putting it on a bit thick. And then when they heard him, they were like, oh, this guy's insane. Yeah. And it really helped my cause. And he was the star of the show. And I, it was the equivalent of the bit at the end of that Queen movie, Bohemian Rhapsody, where they show the original footage against the footage they've recreated. You I haven't go, seen that. Oh, this is really... You're right. This is very accurate. Yeah. So things like that. <laughs> he does look like Brian May. <laughs> it just really, it really helped. He came along and... Because I... He didn't want to be a part of the show. Like I said, oh, can you be in my uh, festival poster? And he said, no, I'm not doing that. And I said, can you just do it? I said, you'll be blurry in the background. I just need you in the shot. And he's like, all right, I'll do it. And he wasn't blurry at all. Like I completely <laughs> lied to him. But then after the, when the show was on, uh, Harold, some wanted to do publicity. And I said, oh, dad, they want to do a photo shoot with us. He said, I'm not doing that. I was like, mate, it, it's going to help me sell tickets. And he goes, well, they can blur my face out. I'm like, you're not a pedophile, mate. You're not blurring <laughs> your face out. The first person to ask for his face <laughs> yeah, to be blurred out, yeah. the Herald's son. In the confidential. <laughs> 
<laughs> so he came along to the shoot, but we had uh, a pile of like suitcases in his hands, so he couldn't see his face, and he was happy with that. Um, so I think he'll be okay with the book. He doesn't. He can read. But he doesn't read books. He's not a big reader. No. So unless, so as long as Mum keeps quiet, <laughs> we'll be safe. I'll have to word her up, um, mate. Uh, it's been a pleasure. This has been really fun. Thanks, Evan. I am glad that we got to do this again. Um, tell people about your footy podcast, which I love, Junk Time AFL podcast. Yeah, it's a Junk Time AFL podcast. If you're into your footy, or even if you're not, it, uh, it's pretty. Yeah. It's pretty out there. There's a little bit of swearing in it, if you can handle that. But, uh, yeah, it's just myself and Michael Chamberlain. We love the footy. We do the live shows with uh, Will and Charlie at the end of the year, and uh, they're fantastic. Yeah, it's good fun. Um, yeah, and Paris and Other Disappointments will be out in August. August. Yeah. So people will be able to buy it at all good airports. Yes, and I think it's it's out in August for Father's Day. Oh, yeah. yeah. So there you go. Nice. Get your dad something Well, nice. hopefully the second draft's good then. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. Fuck. Um, and what about stand-up-wise? What's going on? So stand-up-wise, I'm doing a show in the Melbourne International Comedy Festival, but it's just a best of. So um, it's called uh, The Greatest and Bestest Hits of Adam Rosenbach's. And the reason I did that because I just didn't have time, you know, when we'd be writing a show. I've been writing mm-hmm. the book, so I just thought, you know, I still want to be a part of it, doing the best of. There'll be some stuff about my uh, stay in hospital. And hopefully I can turn that into something funny. And uh, can I ask where it is? Yes, I'm at the European Beer Cafe in the basement. Oh, nice. Good room. Yeah, Yeah, it's it's a great room. Yeah, Yeah. you'll have a really good time. What time? Uh, I'm on at 8.15 for the first week and a half, so I'm only doing 10 shows. Okay, nice. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, okay. Well, brilliant. Go and check that out. Um, I'm doing the the, uh, comedy theatre, which is just down the road, so you can come and see my show. It's called Will Informed, and it's on from uh, the 27th right through the festival. So uh, come and see that. Um, I'm Have you sure. ever done half a festival? Uh, I reckon there was a time. Yeah. I reckon uh, that about, I've been doing the comedy theater for 11 years. I reckon maybe the first year or the second year I did a there, run. I did like the first two weeks or whatever, because it's a big, I mean, it's a big room. It right? is, yeah. So, um, yeah, I reckon the first time that I did that, I did like half the festival and some, yep. some of that. See, there you go. Half. You've doubled, mate. Be proud of that. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. And then I've plateaued. <laughs> Pretty much been the same for about yeah, the yeah. last six or seven years. Yeah. Not complaining, guys. No. It's all gone fine. <laughs> but, <laughs> but you know, there hasn't been a – doesn't feel like it's still yeah. – oh, this is going to go on forever. Yeah, yeah. Let's put an extra show in there. I'm only going to become more and more popular. Have you, you ever put on a sold-out show and then just the numbers aren't there and you're like, oh, fuck, I've overestimated myself here. Well, put it this way, Rosie – yeah, you'll see in the festival there'll be a lot of people who add extra shows. Yeah, I have twenty thousand tickets to sell. Yeah, right. And every year I will not quite sell twenty thousand. Yeah, okay. <laughs> there will never be quite enough <laughs> yep, demand yep. Uh, that I will need an extra show. <laughs> uh, if if you would like to see my show, there will be a ticket available yeah. <laughs> one of the nights during the festival <laughs> yeah. to come and it's see. Choose your nights wise, uh, nights wisely. I mean, of course, we'll sell out. Book now. Yes, is that's what right. I yes, actually yes. mean. Hey, mate, this has been a pleasure. Thanks so much for doing it. Thank you. 